I want you to think for a minute about something we're going to look at in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, and that has everything to do with the word doctrine. All right, so think about that word for a second. Uh, what are the feelings that come uh, to mind for you when I say the word doctrine or when I say a similar word uh, like the word dogma? For some people, they think of sort of dry institutionalism. Uh, everything that feels stale about religion. Uh, for some people, they think of rigid fundamentalism uh, when they hear that word uh, doctrine. Some people picture that ivory tower that you've all heard about, uh, that ivory tower that everybody likes to sit in and talk about theological conversations that seem to have no relevant, uh, relevance for uh, how we live our lives day in and day out. But when you hear that word doctrine, do you ever think of the word drama as closely tied to it? Or do you ever think about music when you hear the word doctrine? Well, Dorothy Sayers, who was uh, a well-known writer, um, an English writer uh, in the 1900s, uh, she said this about uh, doctrine. She said, we're constantly assured that churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine, dull dogma, as people call it. But she says that the fact is precisely the opposite. It is the neglect of dogma, dogma that makes for dullness, because the Christian faith is the most exciting drama that have ever staggered the imagination of man, and dogma is the drama. You see, for Dorothy, Dorothy Sayers, doctrine means divine drama, a divine drama that includes all of us. Uh, John Mackey was uh, a man who was converted because he read the book of Ecclesiastes, or, or not the Ecclesiastes, Ephesians, which is what we're talking about right now. Not many people are converted through Ecclesiastes. Uh, he looked at the book of Ephesians, he was blown away by this book, and he was converted uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. And he recognized that the first half of this letter is all about doctrine, and so he wrote this. He said, this letter is pure music. What we read here is truth that sings. It is doctrine that is set to music. So, so Dorothy Sayers saw doctrine as drama. Mackey saw it as music, as truth that sings. Well, our passage this morning outlines some of the most basic doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is doctrine that invites us into a divine drama, a drama that each and every one of us are invited to participate in, and certainly it is a truth that sings. So this morning what I want to read is the entirety of Ephesians chapter 2, um, we don't do it all justice, but, you know, unless we spend the next year in the book of Ephesians, uh, uh, we have to move quickly through it, but it is a rich and powerful section on some of this divine drama that we are all invited to be a part of. So listen to this, uh, this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 22. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the you were at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, speak to us uh, through your word. We need to hear your voice this morning, Father. We need to to feel your presence. We confess that we are hungry and thirsty spiritually and that we can only be satisfied as we encounter you in your word. So fill us up here this morning. Fill us up with the power of your word. Help us to see once and, uh, uh, and again the beauty of the message of the gospel. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know how many of you have a Facebook, all right? Sean mentioned it earlier in the service. I don't know how many of you have a Facebook, um, but I have a Facebook. I've had one for years. Um, As I looked it up this week, Facebook started actually in 2003. So uh, it's been around for a really long time, and there's now been sort of movies that have been made on the inception and the drama that came uh, around Facebook. Uh, When I was first exposed to it, I was uh, only a couple years out of college, and I was certainly not an early adopter of Facebook. It took me a long time before I 
uh, finally signed up to it. But when I uh, came around to it, I, there wasn't a whole lot to Facebook, at least compared to what we have in terms of social media today. Really, all you could do is you could get on there, you could post a picture here or there, but you had this thing called a, a status, right? And you could tell the whole world what you were feeling, right? Uh, you could tell the whole world, I'm feeling frustrated, or I'm feeling happy today, or I'm, or I'm feeling content. And then they had this thing called uh, the, the permanent status, right? And that was sort of describing your, your life and where you were and sort of where you worked. And, and the most important thing about that is you could change sort of your dating situation on Facebook as well, right? And we, can, we could always remember seeing people that changed their status from single to in a relationship. And we knew it was serious at that point. In fact, a relationship wasn't serious until you actually changed your status on Facebook from single uh, to being in a relationship. Of course, nowadays my kids make fun of me uh, for having a Facebook. Uh, they say it screams middle age, so you can sort that for what it is now. Uh, part of that is because there are so many other social media outlets that are out there. So many ways for us to communicate to the world around us what our status is. Well, our passage this morning uh, talks about doctrine, but it ha- it, it's doctrine that talks all about a change in status, a change of status that happens in our lives spiritually. And essentially the main message is this, that when God enters into a life, when He enters into your life, when He enters into to my life, when God enters into a life, everything about that life changes, especially its status. What our passage does this morning is it establishes to us what uh, the status of humanity is apart from a relationship with God. It's a, a, a big comparison that sets up. What is your status before encountering God? What is your status afterwards? And it's very simple, but it's a remarkable change. So the first thing it shows us is that apart from God, humanity is uh, spiritually dead, is spiritually enslaved, and spiritually condemned. So Paul says right off the bat in in chapter 2, verse 1, he says that we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And verse 5 reiterates this later on in our section. And, And Paul isn't speaking in hyperbole here. He isn't using sort of exaggerated speech Uh, He isn't being over the top. He's simply communicating to us the severity of our status apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this is a time of year when everybody makes their New Year's resolutions, right? And maybe you made some New Year's resolutions each year. Actually, this is the time of year we start to realize how foolish we were uh, to make those New Year's resolutions because, what, we're 12 days into it. Um, But everybody's talking about things like wellness, about what are some new habits I can do in the new year that would bring me to a better place of wellness, that would put my life in a better place. And if you're paying attention, you'll notice that there is a whole industry that seems to be built around wellness nowadays. In fact, uh, that industry feels almost religious In fact, you can search the podcast world, and I love podcasts. You can search the the podcast world, and you could sort of go to Wellness Church 
and you could hear all sorts of sermons about bringing your life to a better state of wellness. Well, I think what Ephesians says here is something profound to speak into this wellness culture. Because I think what Paul is saying is something like this. He's saying you can be the most physically fit person on the planet. You can have the best sort of work-life balance that anyone can have. You can have the best kids. You could have the best job, your dream job. You could be healthy in everything you eat. You could weigh your food and count every calorie and eat as best as you could. You could be in the, the best state financially, achieve financial wellness. You can have all of these things and yet still be spiritually a rotting corpse. That is what Paul is saying here. You see, sometimes I think it's interesting that our culture can be so consumed with wellness in every aspect of our lives, and yet we are either totally ignorant or deceived about the spiritual deadness that we all feel because of sin. Paul makes it clear that deadness also includes hopelessness. He makes that point in verse 12. Dead people are helpless. They are hopeless. Dead people are completely powerless to change their situation and to change their status. So Paul establishes that right from the beginning. Not, but he builds on it. Not only are we dead, but we are also enslaved. Our sins, they enslave us, and each one of us, apart from Christ, is subject to all sorts of forces that seek to control us. Paul says that the course or pattern of this world, it seeks to enslave us, that there's the prince of the power of the air, there are the sinful systems of our world, there are the passions of our flesh. These are all things that he talks about in in verse 2 and 3 that enslaves us. But I think what we also see is that that our natural bent is towards self-centeredness. And that self-centeredness itself enslaves us as well. I actually think this is part of what's behind all of these sort of wellness religions uh, that are out there as well. It is just a a fancy form of self-centeredness. But what John Stott says, I think, is really profound. He says, however respectable the public guise or disguise it adopts, Our ingrained self-centeredness is a horrible bondage. Our constant self-orientation is actually something that is enslaving us. And so all of these elements exist to enslave us. They take away our freedoms. They take away our lives. And so sin leaves us dead. It leaves us enslaved. But finally, what Paul reminds us is that it leaves us condemned. We are culpable for our sins. We are guilty. We bear the blame. Paul calls us the sons of disobedience or the the people who are by nature children of wrath, he says in verse 3. And all of that is something we are justly due. We, are, uh, we justly deserve to be condemned for our sin. And so if nothing changes, we will face the punishment that we deserve. And so, friends, this is our status. So Paul didn't have a Facebook. He's not putting this on for everybody to see, but this letter 
communicates clearly to us what our status is apart from God. This is who we are. We can deceive ourselves all day long, but the end of the day, this is what is true about us. We are strangers without God, without hope in the world. We are alienated. This is who we are apart from God. This is who humanity is apart from God, and we are all helpless to change it. We can't change these things about ourselves. So if, if, if doctrine is drama, then this is the problem that is, that is introduced. Or if doctrine, if we think about it in musical terms, this is the minor key. But the good news is that it isn't the end of the story. It isn't the end of the song. There is more to this divine drama. There is more to this story. And at least in Ephesians 2, it all comes down to two big buts. Now, you can insert whatever joke you want to put in there, but it all comes down to two big buts, and those big buts signal to us that there is hope that our status can be changed. The first one you find in verse 4, and the big but is, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. The second but is found in verse 13. The first one is, but God. This one is, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, there is hope that things can change. You once were this, but now you can be this, and all of it from start to finish is God's doing. Because what Paul is establishing here is that through the sheer richness of God's mercy and grace and kindness that are found in Jesus Christ, you and I, we can receive new life, we can receive a new status, and we can receive a new community. And so those who are spiritually dead, they can be given a new life. But God makes us alive together in Christ. And so in the place of spiritual deadness springs life at the hand of God. Just as Jesus Christ, if you remember the Gospels, just as Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, and just as Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead by the power of God, there is this resurrection power that gets poured into our spiritually dead lives. That power of God is manifested in you and I bringing us back to life. Those of us who have been identified as sons of uh, as, as sons of disobedience, as children of wrath, that status, we can be given a new status. We can be given a new title. We become united with Christ, bonded to Him. We become the workmanship of God. I think that's such a beautiful image that Paul gives us here. We, in a sense, we become masterpieces, you and I, spiritually dead people, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, 
you become a masterpiece, a masterpiece of the mercy and grace and kindness of God that is on display for a watching world to see. Because you and I who were condemned can now be called forgiven. Now, Paul's very careful to help us all understand that all of this is because of grace. All of it, from start to finish, is because of grace. It's not because we've earned it. It's not because we deserved it. It's not because of our performance, but it is because of the richness of His grace, of His mercy, of His kindness that we get to appropriate to our lives through this gift of faith that He gives to each and every one of us. So we get new life. We get a new status. Finally, He gives us a new community. Look at this in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so one of the things Paul wants to establish is that that when we experience the grace of Jesus Christ, the transformative grace of Jesus Christ, we are introduced into the family of God. But that's not all he gives us. He gives us a community of faith as well. A community of people who become our brothers and sisters because we are all found by grace in Jesus Christ. Now for Paul, the pressing issue was this relationship between Jew and Gentile. And in Paul's day, that was a terrible relationship. You think we are politically polarized here in the United States where sort of Democrats and Republicans hate one another and, and, and spout vitriol back and forth from one another? Well, that, that is a very serious division in our culture, but it has nothing on the division between Jew and Gentile in Paul's day. And we're going to flesh this out as we get later on. The Jews believed that, that the Gentiles had no place in the family of God. And so if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, then you were alienated. You were cut off. If you even went to the temple, you were walled off from God by the Jews. And so what Paul argues here is that Jesus brings us a new community where all those divisions disappear. He brings us a new community that is built on Christ, the cornerstone. And when that community is built and founded, then those divisions, they just simply fall away. They don't matter anymore. They all fall away. The dividing walls, they've been torn down. Jesus births us into the family of God, but also gives us a community of faith in which divisions don't matter. You can look around in this room and see all sorts of different people with all sorts of different political positions and life stories and backgrounds, and there's so many things in this room alone, not to mention the greater community of faith, but in this room alone that could divide us. But in Christ, we are a family. We are a community because we are built on the grace of Jesus Christ. And so don't catch the big transformation that Paul is is explaining here. Those who were once dead and enslaved and condemned can receive a new life, a new status, and a new community. And all of it is because of God and His grace that we appropriate to our lives through faith. And so as we saw last week, this whole first half of Ephesians, 
talks about the spiritual riches that we have in Jesus Christ. That's how Paul uh, talks, uh, starts his book. He says, think about all the spiritual riches in the heavenly realms. Guess what? They're all yours. You are rich. And so what Paul's doing here is he's starting to, he's starting to count the riches. He's starting to, to count the money, to, to count the wealth for all of us. You know, think about it. Often we don't really mind rich people that we know as long as they don't flaunt their riches towards us. And then when they f- start flaunting their riches, you just sort of get a little exasperated. That's what Paul's doing here. He is flaunting our wealth. He is flaunting our riches in Jesus Christ. And so, friends, this isn't dry dogma. This isn't sort of institutionalized uh, doctrine. This is a divine drama that Paul is inviting us to see. This is the divine drama of God that is on display. This is the song of God that is being worked out in the story of redemption. And so what Paul is inviting us to do is to get caught up in the drama. Get caught up in the story. You ever watch a show on Netflix and you're like, I'm only going to watch one episode, right? And then all of a sudden, you've watched five, and you just say, I'll just give give it another hour. Why? Because you've been caught up in this story. This is what Paul's inviting us to do. Get caught up in this divine drama that all of you are a part of. Let the music of God's song of redemption, let that music take you away. Because at the end of the day, all of it is about love. That's what Paul says here. All of it is about love because of the great love with which he loved us. So it isn't just a drama, it's a love story. It's a love drama. It isn't just a song, it is a love song that God invites us to be a part of. You who once were dead and enslaved and condemned, you can receive a new life a new status, and a new community. Let's pray.